0: I'll give it to you. That looks really
1: good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay,
0: keep the chatter down in this room. Are you ready to begin? Yeah,
2: I'm all okay, set, sir. Hello, welcome to the September 2023 edition of Space Boffins in partnership with the Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollingham.
3: And I'm Sue Nelson. In a moment, we'll hear from a UK scientist eagerly awaiting a sample from
2: asteroid Bennu. And we'll be hearing from sister Jean Wright about her work as a seamstress on the space shuttle, plus celebrating life by blasting your remains into space.
0: When you're standing the requisite safety three miles away from the rocket and you watch it light up and you hear the thunder roar a little bit later and you see this streaking vehicle uh, breaking the bounds of earth, that's an emotional experience. That's fulfillment, particularly for our clients.
2: Now, for reasons that I won't go into, we are recording this in a hotel room in Pennsylvania. So uh, across the street, as it happens, from a fire, fire station. So <laughs> yeah. so if sirens go off, don't panic. It's here. Not, not with you. Now, seven years ago, a, a NASA spacecraft with a name like a dinosaur headed for an asteroid named after an Egyptian god. Osiris Rex. Now this stands for Origins Spectral Interpretation Resource Identification Security Regolith Explorer, and it's <laughs> des- it's, it's crazy. Its destination was asteroid Bennu, which uh, was a bird associated with creation,
3: a bird god actually. I, I can't believe that a bird god called Bennu sounds normal. Compared, compared to, to Osiris, Osiris Rex. Rex. But yeah. it is a pretty fantastic name. I, I, I know I we always go on about... I just think it involved oh, no. a lot
2: of beers.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's brilliant. Well, in 2020, the spacecraft collected a sample from the asteroid. And a few days ago, that sample landed in the Utah desert to be retrieved by a recovery team. It will soon be studied by around... 200 scientists all over the world, including Natasha Almeida, senior curator in meteorite collection at the Natural History Museum in London. And I began by asking her if she'd watched the live NASA footage of its arrival.
1: Oh yeah, I did. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd actually um, just given an interview on BBC and I was running downstairs just to get ready that everyone would be there. I was at my partner's sister's house for my kid's grandmother's birthday party everyone was way more excited to be watching this (laughs) Uh, my my two nieces were really excited they'd been talking about it at school already and showing off that they knew someone who knew about the rocks my two-year-old not so interested he wanted to get in the garden and keep on playing.
3: (laughs) A natural split there amongst those who've got better things to do and others like us who are just like, get out the way, we want to see what's going on. It was quite interesting, wasn't it, how carefully they approached the sample?
1: Yeah, you you think, oh, we've waited so many years and it's on the ground, just go over there and get it, (laughs) open it up, let me see what it's like. But no, of course, there's so many checks to do of course, to have a look, you know, is the return capsule completely contained, there hasn't been any damage on um, atmospheric entry, and preparing everything, and then obviously ensuring that it's ready for transport, because they took it obviously to the Utah Dugway site first, get it in the clean room, take lots of pictures, ensure everything's okay, and then prepare it for transport to Johnson Space Centre, there's a lot of processes to go through. And it's amazing in the lead up to it, watching just how much practice they did of all of these. You know, every step um, was very well rehearsed.
3: Now, it's quite a, a, a relatively small amount of sample, 250 grams in total. Now, this has been divided amongst 35 different institutions, of which the Natural History Museum is one. So, you know, a little bit of maths there. We're talking about several grams worth of material for each institution. I assume that there's a sort of weighting going on, that maybe some institutions might get more than others. How much are you getting?
1: Actually, only a small proportion of it gets used for the preliminary examination by the mission team. In fact, 75% of it is going to be cached away for, for future analyses. It's going to be kept as pristine as possible. That's actually a key part of curation, whether that be for sample return missions or for meteorite collections like the one that I look after, is that we don't know what kind of technology or analytical techniques are going to come up in the future. And part of what we do is we say we'll look after this for future generations and, and what they will be doing. So, yeah, it's, it's even less material that gets split up amongst the, the team. But actually, what we're able to do with small samples is is getting better and better all the time. So the initial thing that we'll be receiving is about 100 milligrams, probably, wow, so about that's, a tenth of a gram. <laughs> that is so
3: small. That does blow my mind a bit, really, because even if you cast your mind back to school chemistry experiments, what you thought was a tiny amount on the end of a spatula, that would be a mountain compared to this.
1: Yes, and it brings its own challenges. I mean, Just speaking as a curator, having to handle those kind of small materials, ensuring that you're not losing any. And the nature of the sample of an asteroid like Bennu is that it is very dusty (laughs) and it has so much potential for contamination. Holding it very carefully, worrying about static, transferring it, mounting the samples, these are all huge concerns. And so that's why, you know, teams have been training for so long to do it. But yeah, it's quite amazing what we can do with not a lot of material,
3: (laughs) put it that way. Well, before we get on to what you're going to do and look for, OSIRIS-REx, the spacecraft, has been studying Bennu for two years now. So what are you wanting to find that the spacecraft hasn't already discovered?
1: Obviously, like ground-based and also spacecraft-based observations are amazing. They can tell us so much about the sample, but it's different to the techniques and the kind of resolution and concentrations that you can look at when you actually have a sample there with you in the lab. I mean, we know that Bennu is one of the darkest objects in in the solar system. So this is telling us that it's carbon-rich, that it contains organics, but exactly the nature of those kind of organics will be studied in detail when when the sample's there. We also see things like... You know there are some some bright uh, rocks on the surface, some fragments of what we think are um, other asteroids. In fact, the the composition has suggested that it could be linked to these HED meteorites. That, that's a, a group of meteorites called the howardites, eucrites, diogenites, which are uh, were linked to the asteroid Vesta by the Dawn mission previously. But they are very different. Um, they actually are achondritic so they come from an already differentiated or processed asteroid which is very different to what we're expecting from Bennu so that's telling us a bit about mixing in the solar system but basically these these c-type asteroids we think they are remnants left over from the very beginning the early early solar system and so that's telling us about um, what kind of material was available there um, around the time of planetary formation but also, we think it's very rich in phyllosilicates. So these are clay minerals that basically are very water-rich. They come from the interaction of water and rock on these host asteroids. So that's telling us about you know the prevalence and distribution of water in the early solar system. And these are the ones that are suggested and linked to water on Earth. So we're also learning about you know the. the kind of um, objects that could have been bringing water and the building blocks in terms of these organic molecules to to Earth. One of the things that I'm quite excited about is, um, so I I don't know if you've seen the footage, but when TAGSAM, which is the the touch-and-go mechanism that um, landed on Benny to collect the sample... When it was touching down, it actually, it, sh- it showed just how soft and unconsolidated the surface, the regolith of, of Benny was, because it went quite far down before it shot its thrusters and came up again. And it just shows how soft that, that material is. I'm really intrigued to kind of see that in this sample, you know, how porous it is, how soft it is. And it tells us a lot because it might be something unlike anything we see in our meteorite collections around the world because they are all somewhat biased, right? Something has to smack into an asteroid and knock it off and then it survives traveling through space. It survives a very sort of painful entry through our, through our atmosphere where it gets heated and uh, on the surface and it, a lot of time it's breaking up, it's altering. These tend to be the much um, more consolidated samples. So it'll be interesting to see, is it similar to anything that we have in our collections or is it something completely different?
3: Yeah, that's that's an awful lot there to, to sort of get your teeth stuck into, isn't it?
1: Honestly, everyone has a question that they want answered and it's really exciting to be in, in such a great team.
3: So for you then, what will be your first experiment that you'll do once you get your hands on this sample?
1: So my work personally is actually on a technique called microcomputed tomography. So this basically involves shooting x-rays at a sample whilst you rotate it very slowly. And you're collecting all these projections through the sample. And you can put them together to basically get a 3D model of the interior. It's an absolutely amazing technique because it means that you don't actually have to open it up. You're not cutting the sample, you're not exposing it uh, or contaminating it, but you can still see what's inside. For me, that's really exciting. And I should say that what we can achieve with the instruments that we have at the museum is actually sub-micron resolution. So we can see things that are less than a thousandth of a millimeter. And that's why it's important, you know, having such small samples that we have these kind of techniques. But this will be great to see, you know, what is, how porous is the sample? Is it homogeneous or not? Is it a breccia, which is basically a rock that is made up of lots of other rocks? We can tell a little bit about the mineralogy from the structures and shapes that we see in there. Are there chondrules present, which would link to the the group of meteorites, the chondrites, which account for many of the meteorites in our collections. But that tells us a little bit about formation processes. So that's kind of where, where my work is, and, and that's one of the first techniques that we do on a sample before it then goes on to be used for things like scanning electron microscopy. So that's when you can actually get an idea of the composition of the sample. Or one of my colleagues, Helena Bates, is going to be doing um, some thermogravimetric analysis, which basically means that you can heat up a sample to measure its water content. Yeah, there's, there's lots of techniques to come. <laughs> But first of all, we have to allow the amazing curation team to do their work at Johnson Space Centre.
3: Fabulous. And so when do you get your hands on this sample then?
1: Well, first of all, the team are doing a brilliant job curating the sample at Johnson Space Centre. We're all pretty much glued to the live link-up, which actually gives us a a video into the glove box where the sample container is being curated. So (laughs) we're all watching that with bated breath. So first of all, the kind of quick look analysis is being done. So keep an eye for a NASA update coming out soon. And then uh, we'll be expecting our piece. I think Sarah is going to hand carry it back from Houston in mid-October.
3: Natasha Almeida from the Natural History Museum in London. And we look forward to hearing what they've learnt about asteroid
2: Bennu at a later date. Yes, I love that uh, line that that she said in there, that her colleague's going to hand carry it back. (laughs) Imagine taking an asteroid through security.
3: But the thing is, as you heard, it's so small, you could actually have that asteroid sample sort of, you know...
2: Well, a behind secret, your ears secret ring or a watch <laughs> yes, or something exactly. yeah exactly yeah. um i did just briefly want to celebrate another return to earth uh, that of uh frank rubio after uh 371 days in space wow that's impressive and th- that's the longest for any american to date And uh, someone's done the maths. The BBC, in fact, have done the maths. So I'm trusting this. 5,963 orbits around the Earth, travelling 157.4 million miles.
3: How many kilometres?
2: 253.3. Well done. Well Mm. done. If you want some other space facts about long-duration spaceflight, I spend a bit too long looking Whitson's at this. Peggy is going
3: to have to be among them.
2: Yeah, she's she's further down the list. Um, Russian cosmonaut Valery Polyakov <laughs> spent uh, 437 days on board the Mir space station in the mid-90s. Uh, Peggy Whitson, yeah, she holds the record for the most cumulative spaceflight time for any American astronaut. So she spent a total of 639 days in space. The record is held, though, by Gennady Padalka with 879 days over five space flights. And that's more or less about two and a half years in space.
3: Wow, that must have been crazy if you spend that much time on the space station and we know what a confined space it is. We know the views are amazing, but to come back to Earth after that must have Uh, been quite a culture shock.
2: I think that 437 days on board Mir, I mean, that would be, that was in the, and also in the mid-90s, by which time Mir was really showing its age. I mean, there was mould on the walls. It was just, (laughs) (laughs) it was probably more life, more life on the walls than there was inside. Like
3: uh, uh, like a student flat then. Uh, It
2: it was pretty disgusting (laughs) by all accounts. So that is just uh, absolutely incredible now most of us are destined to spend our lives on earth but what if we could go to space after we die well that's the mission of celestis which since 1997 has been launching cremated remains and even samples of dna into space Uh, the company offers and you can see this on its website there's a range of options one's named Earthrise, that launches ashes into space before returning to earth there's earth orbit they go into orbit. There's Luna, that's a mission to the moon, and Voyager, which launches those ashes into deep space or DNA into deep space.
3: Well, while I'd rather, to be honest, go into space before I die, (laughs) we've been speaking to its founder, Charles Chafer, who has an interesting background, which we'll come on to, but I asked him how you go about being buried in space.
0: Well, there are a couple ways uh, that we offer. The one that we've been doing coming up on nearly 30 years, is a post-cremation service where we launch a symbolic portion of an individual's remains, and that's anywhere from one to seven grams, either into space and return, into Earth orbit with eventual degradation and then burning up in the atmosphere, to the lunar surface, or to deep space. The other way that one can participate, if you will, uh, is to choose to send a sample of your DNA, basically a cheek swab, which is then processed in a DNA laboratory, returned to us as a substrate, an inert powder, but containing the entire genome, your entire genome. Both of those samples, either cremated remains or DNA, are placed onto a rocket or onto a spacecraft that is flying on a rocket.
3: Your first was quite well-known and well-reported, being um, the Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry. Uh, in, in terms of celebrity status, shall we say, have you had other famous remains go into space since then? Well, we know you have, but well, we know I know a few of them, but I'd love to know <laughs> from you exactly who you've had.
0: Actually, on that first flight was also the 60s icon, Dr. Timothy Leary. And so two pretty famous people on that first flight. Subsequently, we've launched Uh, other Star Trek actors, uh, Scotty, Jimmy Doohan, as well as astronauts. And really from all walks of life, we launched Bill Pogue, who was a Skylab. Uh, We launched a family member, a child of astronaut Nicole Stott, who was a space station uh, astronaut. And we've launched Dr. Philip Chapman, who was a Apollo astronaut who never flew. Uh, he was a scientist astronaut and the, the Apollo program got cancelled before he was able to fly. So several astronauts or astronaut families have, have chosen us for their services as well.
2: I was wondering about the motivation for people doing this. Is it is there an element of this being for the family? Because I suppose you get to attend a, a launch event. It, it's not quite like seeing, you know, a, a, a partner, a friend or a family member flying as an astronaut. But it is there's something about it, isn't it? Is, is that uh, sir, part of the motivation? Know,
0: people choose our service for one or both of two reasons. The first is destination. I want to go to space. I want my ashes to go to space. And the second is experience. I want to have the biggest light the candle memorial service that all my friends can attend. Both of those are reasons why people select our service.
3: There is that lovely touch as well of we are all made from stars, isn't there about it? And um, I I actually do like the science fiction potential of the thought of someone's DNA, perhaps, you know, travelling across the universe and helping to start life elsewhere on um, some barren planet in another solar system. And if somebody hasn't written that already, they really should do. Um, Won't the DNA break down in space, though, in time, you know, due to cosmic radiation We do,
0: is we do, lack of a better term, industry standard radiation protection. So for NASA's deep space probes, they want the instruments to last a long time. And in fact, the Voyagers are out there 50 years plus. And so they use a special kind of titanium metal, which acts as a filter. For much of the cosmic radiation that the spacecraft will encounter, uh, we further augment that by placing the capsules in in a place on the spacecraft where there's a further level of shielding we We take preservation steps but we certainly don't tell people Oh, and this will last forever the contents you know we're hoping for a few million years
2: it's very different timescales isn't it very different timescales i mean have you you must have experienced some touching moments or some very emotional moments with this i mean obviously all funerals are emotional but this is a whole new level of emotion when you've also got a a yeah in fact
0: i experience those moments every time we launch uh Which I think is what, the best way to look at it is I tell people you've never gone to a funeral where there's this much cheering and high-fiving going on. When you're standing the requisite safety three miles away from the rocket and you watch it light up and you hear the thunder roar a little bit later and you see this streaking vehicle um, breaking the bounds of Earth, that's an emotional experience. That's fulfillment, particularly for our clients. Many of them have always wanted to travel in space, never had a chance to do that. But you're fulfilling someone's ultimate wish. And it's an emotional all the way through. I've had a couple of remaining uh, spouses tell, or children's. One I can think of, I hear it in my head all the time. You know, dad didn't smile much during... His last few weeks and months, but you should have seen him when we told him what we were going to do for him and it's It is very much you know funerals are for the living right yeah you know, 've gone through a lot of grief isn 't it great to have some joy at the end
3: that 's lovely and um, what happens though I know you 've done quite a number of launches already and, and and pretty much most of them have have gone as planned. What happens when a mission is unsuccessful and for whatever reason whether haven't been able to make the orbit or you know there's a technical problem that you you can't get the remains because that you know how does that impact the the families and how do you well first all the families
0: know they're going to fly again because our contract with them uh, says if the first one does not achieve and we describe what mission success is one orbit around the planet landing on the moon whatever that doesn't happen, then we've already taken a larger sample than we need to fly the first one and we provide a complimentary reflight. The other thing is that we screen our clients very well, I guess I would say, and that we talk to them throughout the process and we say, hey, if... This doesn't succeed, and you think you'll have an adverse reaction to watching it, we recommend you know purchase it. So a lot of it is the family's understanding in advance that, oh, yeah, this is rocket science. And, oh, yeah, this is what my husband spent his life trying to do. And of course, he'd want to try again. We have those conversations with people. We have them while we're in the sales process. And we also have them when they visit the launch site. I give a speech at the end of every memorial saying, we're about to go see the launch. Three things can happen. Two of them you're not going to like. You need to be prepared for that. I mean, we could, what we expect and what almost always happens is we'll have a great launch, a great success, and you'll have a great day. But we might encounter a delay. And you have to be prepared for that. And my old boss, Deke Slayton, one of the original Mercury astronauts, had a statement that NASA doesn't give out any awards for an on-time failure. So you just got to have an expectation that if there's a delay, you'll come back and try again.
2: Just one final question, actually, about Deke Slayton, because you mentioned him. Formidable, legendary character. I was reading your biography and thought, wow, you worked for Deke Slayton. Uh, he, <laughs> he oversaw the astronaut office. He decided, it, with a, a, a quite an opaque process, which astronauts got to fly the various Apollo missions in, in particular. Uh, I mean... What I, I don't want to ask what he was like, but what did you learn from him, and what can we learn from him as uh, as this you know legendary leader within within space and within space flight in the history at, of America at least in two space. things.
0: The first is perseverance. This is a man who was supposed to fly the second orbital mission after John Glenn, who got grounded by in Deke's term a bunch of weenies at headquarters who. For his heart murmur, who didn't accept that, lost weight, stopped smoking, jogged even more, worked, worked, worked for 15 years roughly before he got the last Apollo mission, the Apollo-Soyuz mission. So he personified perseverance. And he brought that to the private company that, that I worked for him at. And the other thing is loyalty. You could get on his bad side pretty quickly and pretty easily, and he was done with you. But if if he established that personal relationship with you, he took it beyond the grave. And what I can remember is that the movie The Right Stuff showed his dear friend Gus Grissom panicking and blowing the hatch, and that was the reason that they lost the Mercury spacecraft. Deke walked out of the premiere at the Kennedy Center in D.C., was asked, what do you think? And he just said, I think it's a bunch of bullshit how they treated Gus Grissom. It's not true. And he just, whew, it just went. And that was a characteristic that I, I personally witnessed that he had with, with his folks, very, very loyal. So those are the two strongest memories I have of him.
2: Well, thank you for sharing that that memory. That's great. And thank you for coming on and talking about uh, Celestis.
3: Yeah, I must admit, I think it sounds fabulous. And I think there'll be a lot of space fans listening (laughs) who, like me, will be thinking... "Mm -hmm."
2: (laughs) (laughs) Charles Chafer, founder of Celestis. Do you want to do that? Just sign you up?
3: Um, I think it's wonderful. I, I think it's for somebody who's totally into space. I mean, what a wonderful tribute and honor. Um and particularly uh, as most things with anybody who's died it's the living who who have to deal and cope with the loss and the memory and if I think that would really help if you knew someone. Yeah, and it's an know, event it really like quite like yeah. quite like
2: the the event As nature. I say I
3: would rather go <laughs> Both ways, both before and after, after. I'd be happy. That would be the ideal combination: is a a before and after.
2: When we were doing that interview, almost all the way through, there was a little soundtrack in my head. You know that "We Are Stardust." You know that is it from Age of Aquarius? It's like a '60s kind of "We Are Stardust."
3: I don't don't remember that song at all.
2: Never. Write in if you know. This is Space Buffins. We're in partnership with the Naked Scientists. You can get in touch on Facebook and X. Now, Elon Musk has broken Twitter. (laughs) Do send us uh, your thoughts. They are always welcome. Uh, Just something I meant to mention earlier, actually, when we're talking about um, Osiris Rex and that return to Earth Mm -hmm. of the sample. You ever seen the film Andromeda Strain?
3: Oh, gosh, of course. Because
2: it reminded me exactly of that, Ah. of this capsule coming down to Earth. Only in Andromeda Strain, when that capsule comes down to Earth, something's released. Oh, that kills I've everyone. About that it kills everyone apart from the baby. Well, lucky And they have to work out why here, the baby's still okay. Here. Oh uh. Yeah. Oh,
3: we'll have to rewatch that. So that what reminded me of that? Because that was based on a book by Michael Crichton. Yeah, it? there was yeah. there were
2: two versions. There's the original and there's a remake. The original is so much better. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, really brilliant. I think I've only seen sort of the dystopian sixties really brilliant uh, design.
3: Oh, speaking of uh, sci-fi we're looking forward to going to see the creator won't we? so we will have seen it by the next uh the next podcast i, I i'd love it to be an excuse to do some other piece on space and ai or, or something because i'm sure we can wheedle it in somewhere with ai being one of my favorite sci-fi tropes so well so i can, we can i can
2: give you a suggestion oh, yeah. already mm-hmm. because martin reese uh, astronomer Royal. Astronomer Royal. I think he's still astronomer is he still Royal, the, isn't he? Yeah. I think he's still um, astronomer Royal. Um, well-known astronomer. He is. We've had him on the podcast mm-hmm. saying this. In fact, that he is not in favour of people going deep into space, and ultimately it'll be our AIs that go into space that explore on our behalf.
3: Oh, nice. So, I mean, we may be able to get him again. It depends. He's, he's very, very busy Also, manager, he couldn't so operate get... a
2: USB microphone. <laughs> <laughs> but we could try.
3: <laughs> we can indeed. Now, there are some amazing jobs within the space industry and sewing isn't necessarily one that first comes to mind. But from the earliest spacesuits, sewing has been a key part of the industry and continues today with both handmade and machine sewing playing a vital part in protecting spacecraft from extreme temperatures. Now, Jean Wright was working in a dress shop when she got the opportunity to apply her seamstress skills for NASA. And since then, she has never looked back. Before retiring, Jean had worked on the Orion parachute, test thermal blankets for Artemis and Starliner. But it's her work on the iconic space shuttle, protecting the craft from heat and radiation that's the focus of her new book. It's called So Sister and is by Jean and Elise Matic, which, as we'll hear, while it's predominantly aimed at a younger audience, will definitely appeal to big kids like us. Two. Now, I first met Jean, as you'll know, Richard, it was pre-pandemic, it was at NASA in Florida with astronaut Nicole Stott, because we were making a, a radio programme. So if this interview between myself and Jean sounds pretty informal, that's because we've been friends ever since. Now, she began our interview by describing when she first got interested in space and wanted to work for NASA.
4: Oh, it was a childhood dream. As I've mentioned in the book, we didn't have a very happy house. I mean, it was okay, not very happy. And I guess it's like anything else. You always look outward and see if something could be encouraging. And the night we walked on the moon, that was my thing. I just looked in the moon and I I thought it's so exciting. It was just so different. And somehow I just knew that I wanted to be there. I wanted to be a part of all of that. It gave me something good to look forward to. I always wanted to. I didn't know how I would, but I just knew deep down. And at work, when I finally did eventually get to work, it's funny because there was like five or six of us. And sometimes during our break, we would talk. And it was the same thing. Not everybody felt that way, but there were were all of us. It's like we call ourselves the Moonies. It's like we all went outside that night and just knew that somehow we would be a part of it. And so some people get it, some people don't, but I had the same group of people, not all the so sisters, a lot of the engineers, some of our quality inspectors, but they were the same. They understood how I felt about going out that night and just wanting to be a part of all of that.
3: It's inspired so many people. and It's funny. I, I know that your partner, Ken Kramer, the space journalist, broadcaster, photographer is obviously in the background. Sounds like he's microwaving himself um breakfast. something. <laughs> Sorry. That's all right. I just love it. He lives on coffee. <laughs> oh, don't we all? But what was it? Because most people, when they think of jobs at NASA, you know, I mean, you know, the the, the the glitzy one is obviously astronaut, astronaut, and very few people become astronauts. And then you realize there are all these different jobs, like scientist, engineer, you can work in admin, you could do marketing, publicity. But not many people would think, okay, I've got skills here. I'm a really good seamstress NASA need them. How did you know that NASA used seamstresses?
4: Everybody thinks this because when I say I sewed for NASA, that's the first thing they think of is, oh, she worked on the spacesuits. And I get that. So like most people, I knew they must have had seamstresses to do that. The thermal blankets and stuff, that was a little beyond me because I was young then. I was only 13 and a half when we walked on the moon. So of course, that was unknown to me. But the spacesuits, yes. And I just figured there there was some, there had to been a niche. But I'm like everybody else. I thought, okay, engineer, scientists that's above my realm, not my interest. I'm more a creative person. But I just knew deep in my heart that somehow, and I know it sounds corny, I knew I was going to be there. I didn't know how, but I just knew I was going to be there.
3: So, did you see anything in a in a newspaper or or you know a job ad that made you realize you could take your skills and apply it and get in?
4: As for job listings, no. But um, when we lost Columbia, we were getting ready for return to flight. And so Florida Today, our local newspaper, did a whole series of called Return to Flight. And uh, one of the sections that they had was eventually I saw my uh, co-worker, Pilar Ryan. It's funny because she married a Navy man and she's from Spain and she wanted to work at NASA too. So she ended up working at NASA. They had a picture of her in the paper and she was working on a blanket. And I remember thinking, wow, I mean I knew NASA had seamstresses, but I didn't know to what extent. So emboldened, I um looked her up on Facebook and I sent her a, a message and I, I said, Please don't think I'm some sort of crazy crackpot. <laughs> but I saw you I saw you in the paper. And I and I just wanted to know what the qualifications were. And she said you had to have an associate's degree. Knowing how to sew, of course, was no, a number one, and also that you had to know how to read blueprints. I didn't have an AS, um, but um, I knew how to sew because I've been sewing since I was seven a long time. And blueprints, my next door neighbor, the Hansfords, he was an engineer for General Motors who designed cars in Michigan. And so he used to leave them laying around, and I would ask him questions all the time. It was a different kind of blueprint, but the premise is still the same. You know, they have different codes and all that stuff. So I just um, applied and I didn't hear anything for six months and um, I tweaked my resume and uh, almost to the, about four days later, I had Kennedy Space Center on the caller ID, thought somebody was playing a cruel joke on me because everybody knew I wanted to be out there. And it was basically saying that they were happy with my qualifications and could I come in for an interview. And um, I had an interview a few days later. It was a two-hour interview with four different people in the room. But wow. again, you're just walking in. I got there to my interview. It was some kind of embarrassing. I got there an hour early. So I was walking around out there. It was so cold. People don't think it gets cold in January here, but it was. It was very cold, very windy. I'm walking by the VAB and my hair is going all over the place. So I went to the cafeteria, which was probably... Quarter mile away from my building, so I'm going in the bathroom, acting like I'm all cool, combing my hair, and I had a temporary badge, like I like I really belong there. <laughs> so, so anyway, so I'm walking to the building, and there's a woman named Debbie, and uh, she was the like our greeter uh, in the building. She did um, a lot of paperwork there. So anyway, I was just blabbering on like an idiot to her saying, oh, I've always wanted this job and I hope I get it and blah, blah, blah. I'm getting nervous and everything else. So um, anyway, the interview lasted almost two hours, but it was just so easy. I just pretended, as lame as this sounds, like I was at a cocktail party and that these (laughs) were my longtime friends and, and they were surprised at how much I knew because I used to get on NASA TV all the time. So I would know what the launch schedule was, Plus, in between, I would get on the computer at night because I knew I wanted to work thermal protection, and I didn't know specifically threads or fabrics. So I literally, from that time I did my first resume to the second, I was on the computer almost every day, maybe a half hour here, 10 minutes there, just reading to see when I got there that I as I say to people that I didn't sound stupid when I had the interview, but they were amazed at how much I knew. Amazed. Well,
3: I'm not surprised you got the job. You sound as though you you know, you didn't need any training
4: you <laughs> you'd sort of already <laughs>
3: researched it all. I mean you mentioned, you know, fabrics there. What what sort of fabrics and thread were
4: you working with? Oh, a lot of neat ones. Quartz thread we had, which is what we used I would say ninety percent of our sewing. Um, and then we had some that was called AB 440. It's a bright neon pink thread, which makes that so cool is that the high melt on that thread is over 3,200 degrees. And it was a tricky one to sew. It's ironic to me that the higher temperatures you go with fabrics and threads, actually the more fragile it gets, which is kind of weird because on our, our AB 440 thread, the bright pink thread really, really thick. If you could, I would say it's like a, is oh, I don't know. It's, I don't know how many millimeters, but if it's equivalent. I would say if you put like maybe eight threads together, it would equal one th- thickness. Almost well. like knitting wool, maybe? I would say that that's a perfect, that's perfect. That's a perfect description. Thank you. Yes, I don't <laughs> knit, I crochet, but I haven't done in a while. But yes, that's a perfect thickness. The thing is, is um, it was kind of like a rough th- a thread and it was too thick to go through a sewing machine, but it also frayed easy. So that was definitely a a one we had to do by hand. So that would be like in the thermal barriers, the nose area, because that's the hottest, it's right underneath her nose. People think it's the bottom of the shuttle, but it's actually in the thermal barriers that line the wheel well doors and the nose. So that's what we would do all of our hand sewing and installation with that thread. The quartz beige, uh, that was probably rated to maybe 2,300, maybe more. Whenever I talk about quartz thread, people go, How do you make thread from stone? Because that's exactly what it's made out of. So I always say, You guys, I think over there, call it candy floss. We call it cotton candy here. Yes, yeah. So what we do is they would take a finely ground, ground quartz and melt it to a liquid. And it's almost like cotton candy when you melt that sugar down and it shoots it on the edge the air hits it and it it automatically hardens so it's kind of the same way cuz i had no that idea. must be quite um tough on the fingers though even if it's a you know a thread that did you wear gloves to sew well technically we if we were having, doing parts that didn't be heat cleaned afterward a lot of our parts were heat cleaned and baked in the oven but yeah sometimes we wore gloves but really it wasn't that much different than a regular thread it had like a little coating to it so really it wasn't, and that was probably as close. If you've ever done um, sewing with carpet thread, a thicker thread, that's, the, I would say, the thickness of our quartz thread. You
3: mentioned the nose and the bits. Let, let's take us then. You, you've got these skills. You've got this extraordinary thread. Um, you've got various different types of, of materials. What specific parts of the shuttle were required sewing?
4: Oh, so much more than you think. Everybody mentions the blankets on the outside, which is true, which by the way, we've been flying those outside the shuttle since we lost Challenger in 86, probably about 87, 88 is when we started taking the tile off and replacing with the blankets. So it's still a long, 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 a lot of the years on shuttle with blankets. So we not only did those, those are about 2200 of those, and they're, they range from a quarter inch thick to two inches thick two inches being on the ohms pod, and everybody thinks, oh, it's because it's near the engines, but that has nothing to do with that. Um, The second hottest part of the wing uh, on the shuttle is inside the wing where it indents, so you have a lot of heat wicking from that area going right to the ohms pod. So we had to change out the tile there. They used to be all white, then we had to change them to a darker tile, so we call those the shuttle eyeballs. But we have two-inch thick blankets there now, because the underskin is composite and NASA requires us to keep the skin of the shuttle no hotter than 350 degrees. So we don't need a thicker blanket there for excessive heat. We just need it to keep the skin underneath there. We might see for us, maybe 800 degrees there, 900, which sounds like a lot, but thermally wise, that's really nothing. (laughs) That's nothing. So those are the thicker blankets there. And we had blankets in the payload bay, the white ones that everybody sees. Those are beta cloth, which is a Teflon coated fiberglass. Probably about mm, maybe 21, 2200 of those as well. We have two different kinds of blankets, though, on all of these. There's um, MLI, which are anywhere from 16 to 32 layers, but they're only this thin.
3: MLI, that multi-layer
4: multi-layer insulated. And so what we would do is we would make a matching blanket called a a fibrous blanket, which would have batting. So two blankets of the same shape, but one would be an MLI and one would be a fibrous and stack them together. And those would be coated with a silver polyimid fabric, a film, I should say, about 5,500 of those. So in just the payload bay alone, uh, between the Beta and the Polyamid blankets, there's over 7,000 blankets in that area.
3: I mean, when most people think of blankets, they think of something that covers your bed. When you're saying so many hundreds of them, what what was the average size of a, of a space shuttle blanket?
4: Oh, well, it depends on where we were. We had a giant needle, 30-needle uh, sewing machine that quilted the fabric for the outside blankets. That would make a 30 by 30 inch, and you would have to do your centimetres. Seventy centimeters. That's about a meter square, actually. Just short of a meter square. Yeah. So, and from that, we would cut whatever size we needed. Ideally, we would try and keep the blankets that full. It's called a production unit (PU). We try to use as many full sizes as we could. See the weight savings. I could pick up a blanket, and you could pick up a tile. The tiles weigh nothing. The blankets are heavy, but we saved over seven thousand pounds when we switched to blankets. And people go, "I don't get it." we could cover more surface area with a blanket. I mean, it was just less tile to be built. So. I
3: mean, I was going to ask, ask you that, actually. You know, why have a fabric instead of a, a ceramic or, a, you know, a composite material of something? Because you would automatically think that the material would offer more protection.
4: As a seamstress, it was a godsend to us. And I suppose to the tile people, too. The Alms pod, you see that really tight curve. It's called the orbital maneuvering system. Most people would know it as the two humps between the tail. We used to do what we called a dice cut and cut a tic-tac-toe design on the back of each tile to give us the curvature that we needed. The blankets were so easy to work with because you've got that flexible fabric. It was so much easier to install the blankets on there in the tight curve instead of a tile. That and the, the advantage of fabric is is, which I love to point out, is especially in Atlantis, because I see her all the time, I can point out the patches that are on her because instead of taking a blanket off when it gets damaged, we'll either cut a core of it out and put a patch of it in and then cover it with another piece of fabric, or we just stitch it like a like a, stock, a stocking stitch to put the fibers together. But the tile, I mean, tile is more, much more complicated because there's so many measurements to those. These, you just glue them right on, and then they get a ceramic coating on them but they are baked before we put them on though
3: <laughs> was your work appreciated at the time by other members of nasa
4: it's 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 like you can read my mind because i would think number 1 even to this day people had no idea that the shuttle was covered with fabric again it was towards the late you know in the late 80s but but some of our engineers and and i tell this story sometimes Sometimes they would kind of like downplay the fact because we were women seamstresses and, and they probably thought like their mother or their grandmother, Oh, they just sew. But my boss, and I'm being, I'm going to be a little, my boss used to say, and you can clean this up (laughs) used to tell them to sit their ass next to next to a sewing machine, look Uh at a blueprint. And he said, you create what they do. Their tolerances are so very tight. We went down to a thousandths of an inch and some of our, our tolerances were as thin as the thread where our plus or minus were. Um, That's precision work. Very precision work. And, and when I talk about not knowing much math, but we did have in some of our parts, we had to do calculations as to how many grams of batting a part would get. So there is math involved, but the guys would just say, oh, they're just sitting down snow. and sewing. My boss would say, you know what? Those girls make me look damn good every single day. They're a source of pride for me. and uh, And we routinely would get uh, compliments from NASA for what we did. And my boss would make sure that we would all know that we were appreciated. Now, the engineers is another thing. (laughs) (laughs) We used to have a thing with them because you're a creative person. I'm a creative person. um, and, And they used to, I think, downplay the creativity part. I used to talk to them all the time about how left-brain and right-brain people, we both need both of our expertise to get this done. But they used to say about creativity, oh, anybody could take a crayon and draw, and that used to just drive me crazy. Oh, <laughs> <even though laughs>
3: Really? I guess that's, that's interesting. I like the way in the book one one particular story is covered, and that's to do with Atlantis. Could you explain... What it was that happened on Atlantis that required the help of the so sisters?
4: You're speaking of STS-117, and we noticed on NASA TV we were we had a couple of issues where blankets had pulled back. In fact, on our return to flight on 114, there was a blanket that peeled back right next to Eileen Collins's window and that one that one was okay that one did okay but this one being on top of the ohms pod where the tile and the blankets meet at the ohms it's got a lot of wind that goes over the top of that and it's a class 11 blanket cuz our blankets are classes by thickness those being our 2 inch blankets they're called a class 11 and it had, a section of it had pulled back I would say maybe three or four inches, and they were afraid coming in on reentry that the drag would either cause excessive heat in that area or pull the blanket off completely. It's funny, as much as I hate to say about the blame, when we saw that on NASA TV, the first person said, okay, look at the part ID number. Let's look up who made the blanket, who made the blanket. And we're going, it wasn't who made the blanket. It was whoever installed the blanket across the street. Cause apparently I guess they didn't put enough RTV, which is room temperature vulcanization, the glue that we glue the blankets and the tile on with. So getting back to the situation, we weren't sure how it was going to make it back. So we literally, this was, this was Pedal to the metal time. We had to fire up our 30-needle sewing machine because we didn't do Class 11 blankets very often because we didn't replace the blankets very often. And so what NASA wanted us to do was to replicate that section of the shuttle with tile and blankets. So we had to pick... Three blankets and three tile, and then a make... bit like an Apollo thirteen, sort it of do yeah. the exact replica. Yeah, it was like that. We had to do a replica of it, and we had to make four test samples. But we only had twenty four hours to do it. That all had to be done. All had to be bonded and ha- and replicate the exact section. And then they had to go to Houston overnight because Houston was going to be doing some arc jet, jet testing, wind testing, and everything else to see if we couldn't repair it or get it laid down, if it was still make it home all right. So John uh, Olivas, who was the astronaut that she portrays in there, he gets a little suturing kit, just like it says, a little suturing kit. And we're all watching NASA TV while he's doing this. And we're laughing, thinking, because a little suture kit, you've got that really thin thread and a little teeny needle, because you're doing stitches. It's made for stitches, not... So we're kind of chuckling at the TV, thinking, "Mm mm-hmm, he's going to try and fix the two-inch blanket with that little needle and thread. So anyway, so um, he gets a staple because they have a special stapler and um, he used part of that and he ended up using his fingers and just shoving it down into where it went. Anyway, she made it home okay. I mean, we had a couple of things happen that I really wasn't allowed to talk about. So that was one of them that I could. It's lucky that they had a needle up there, to be honest. Oh, that's true. Yeah, we always joke it's because they have to repair the spacesuits. No, they would not. No, they, they wouldn't do that. I'm joking. They would not. No way. The only other thing, and this may be of interest to you, the only other thing I was going to mention, and we couldn't put it in the book, we had a situation, we have a special blanket on the belly of the shuttle, it's the only blanket, it's called an arrowhead blanket, and it's it's about this big, it looks like a baseball plate that you would play baseball with. It's done completely by hand and it takes five days to do. And it's got about 13 penetration holes in it that are all done by hand. And it's actually bolted underneath the shuttle. And it's where the very top of the external tank attaches. That's where it goes. It goes around that top extension at point. We have it for two reasons there. One, because we use explosive bolts to kick off the external tank. And it acts as sound suppression because the tiles were cracking there before we put the blanket there. And the other situation was if one of the bolts were to go the wrong way, that blanket could catch it. Well, back in 2008, we had a bolt that did exactly that. Instead of jettisoning out this way, it went straight up into the blanket. And so we could have lost a shuttle there if that blanket wasn't there. And they preferred me not to talk about that one because we could have lost that so I want that one I thought was more thrilling than the other but we (laughs) can do that but um we always joke that blanket takes five days to do and its job is done in less than two and a half minutes but what a critical blanket the only one on her belly and it's covered with a plate of RCC otherwise it would burn up on (laughs) reentry.
3: I I like the way in the book it said um, that few people think about sewing as high technology but it's so obvious hearing you how much technology goes into all parts of, of these materials, be it fabric, be it your knowledge, being, you know, how you have to incorporate and know what, how it fits in with other parts of, of, of the shuttle. I was also really chuffed to, to sort of read that, um, you'd sent astronauts some crew patch designs.
4: I did. When you were young. I mean, that's adorable. Maybe it's a form of escapism at home. My parents, they ended up divorcing at 24 years, but they didn't talk to each other. They didn't show an affection. And it was just, it was a nightmare. (laughs) So um, my sister Joan and I, um, we used to Take our crayons and draw these little designs and send them to Houston, and and they would we would get a polite thanks, but no thanks, but but they would send us uh, mission briefings and they would send us astronaut pictures, and it was just thrilling to get something in the mail. <laughs> it was just nice, so we did. Oh, that no, that's lovely
3: because I've I've mentioned on the podcast uh, before in in the past. I I think I was thirteen. I'd written to NASA mm-hmm. asking how to become an astronaut because I wanted to you know to to do the same, and and they'd written back to me and had actually sent me the blueprint designs of the space shuttle oh, at the I'll time, which which I have, which I still have in the attic somewhere. But wow. and I love the fact that they didn't discourage me. They didn't. Mention that you're British, so you can't work for us <laughs> or that you're 13, you know, and those things do make a
4: difference when you're that age. Don't My they? manager, Martin Wilson, he's 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 a Brit. In fact, now he works for SpaceX. So anyway, he thought the same thing like you. um. But he said it took longer for his security clearance. But he did.
3: Well, you've had Michael Fole, NASA astronaut, British-born, and he's not, you yeah. know,
4: there's, uh, he's it's not the far, the only far. one. He's Australian, though, I thought. Mm-hmm. I don't know, I remember.
3: Yeah, we're everywhere. So you've produced this beautiful book with Elise Matic, and she's done the illustrations
4: uh, as well. How did you two meet? She was at the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex with her family. I was a docent there. A so,
3: docent for British um,
4: listeners. It's like a volunteer, isn't volunteer, it? Volunteer. Uh, docent is Latin for teacher. So um, her husband saw me and she he knew that Elise sewed. Um, so he said, oh, there's a woman here that you might be interested in seeing. So she came by and she had a lot of questions for me. And she says, you know, I'm a Montessori teacher and I've written before. But she says, I'll be honest. She said, with my children and time and everything, she goes, it's hard for me to finish projects. But she says, there's just something about you and your story. She said, I'm going to be determined. This will be the project that I finally finish. And she says, it's like hidden figures. She says, I had no idea to, but I, until I listened to you about the how intensive all the work was. And she said, I just find it very inspirational. And I want you to be my first book in my series of women who've done jobs that maybe people haven't heard about. People told me it took about five years for a book to come from beginning to fruition. And I thought, eh, but then COVID happened and everything else. So it was right about five years, maybe a little longer than that. You must be very
3: pleased with the way it came out because it's a lovely mix of, I like. The, I actually like the way you've got the author's notes at the ends where you've got photographs and a bit more details about you. And then you've got the sort of illustrated, aimed more at, at a younger reader to describe your life. I mean, what age range would you say the book is aimed at?
4: 6 to 96. Ken not 6 to 96. I, I, Ken, <laughs> six to 96.
3: I, I could hear I, that. He's like your publicist, isn't he? He, in the he, is, oh, he,
4: he promotes oh, yeah. me very well. Okay. He <laughs> promotes me very well. Not just for kids. He says it's not just for kids. <laughs> and you're a
3: bit of a rocket chaser, aren't you? Because, um, you know, I, I see you a lot taking uh, photographs and going there with, with Ken Kramer, your fiancé,
4: and, you know, basically having a great time. We are. In fact, that's how I met him. I was uh, volunteering to help escort the photographers around to set up remote cameras. That's where I physically met him for the first time. But yeah, we uh, have a a website called Space Up Close. He's the managing editor. I'm a photographer. But yeah, we get to set up remotes and everything else and chasing uh, rockets. Yes, you're right. Especially since the launch pace is picked up. (laughs) We're busy. But it's a happy busy. It's a
3: happy busy. The wonderful Jean Wright, whose book, So Sister, co-written with Elise Matic, is out in the U.S. now and uh, in the U.K. shortly, pretty shortly, actually, just within another few weeks. And if you're going to be visiting NASA in Florida around November 17th, head for the Kennedy Space Centre Visitor Complex because Jean will be there signing copies of her book near the Atlantis Space Shuttle. And also, I've got to plug it, if you've not yet heard the BBC audio documentary I mentioned that I'd made with astronaut Nicole Stott, it's called Hey Sisters, So Sisters and features Jean and other seamstresses within the space industry. You can uh, find it as a podcast.
2: Do get in touch, particularly if you can tell me what song uh, "We Are Stardust" comes from, because it's really bothering me now. And uh, that Space Boffins will be back next month or the month after, at some point some in point, the next few yes. weeks. <laughs> Thanks for listening.